Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Book Burners, Season 2, Episode 25. One. Asante stood before the court. Monsignor Fox and Umber watched her from the bench before the empty cardinal seat, while other prelates waited in the wings. Fox rubbed his eyes and clutched his coffee. Angels warred with devils on the arch ceiling, and Adam and Eve sheltered in place. Everyone looked like they'd rather be anywhere but here. Everyone except Asante. She was a pillar in a gold dress. She was indomitable. She stared up at the bench as if she were staring down. The audience packed into the narrow courtroom. The sole empty chair belonged to the cardinal, and that only because the society still lacked one after months of debate. And Julie had been the presumptive candidate, but he was gone now having withdrawn his name from consideration for the position and from the society itself. The audience swelled with society functionaries, trusted ministers, and sharks smelling blood in the water. Manchu squeezed into the front row, beside Sal and Grace and Liam, themselves squeezed by Asante's assistants, minus poor Francis. He felt surprised both by how many faces he recognized and how many he didn't. Hilary Sansoni, of course, across the aisle, crystal calm and cool as ever. Tavani Shaw sat in the second row with her team, including Lynn Sue, who still walked with crutches after her fight with Grace in the catacombs last year. He even recognized Siegfried, the door guard. Nurses from the clinic, file clerks from Team Two, Swiss guards, mailroom attendants, all the hangers-on even Manchu seldom remembered. The unglamorous support staff, without which no organization, secret or not, could run. They didn't get enough credit. Of course, they didn't get killed as often either. Manchu clasped his hands and tried not to show his nerves. He'd last been here after the tornado eaters fiasco, after Bouchard's death, when he and Sal and the whole team had been arraigned for incompetence. The hearings following Cardinal Verano's indictment had been held elsewhere, in the high and private offices where cardinals were brought to task, or not, for their misdeeds. Back under Verano, the death of a team leader, the use of magic on American soil, had been regrettable inconveniences, not in themselves, but for the paperwork they generated. 
The hearing's point had been to offer an impression of action without actually taking any. Verano would never have allowed an audience like this. Not that meant she wanted the old man back. Cardinal Verano had been a horrible human being, racist, obstructionist, condoning slaughter and torture so long as they made his life easier. Under his rule, Asante might have been quietly and deniably killed. Now, if she died, there would be people watching. This feels different from when I was up there, Sal said beside him. That was an inquest, he said. This is a trial. Can they actually sentence her? She sounded disgusted by the prospect. Menchu didn't blame her. He did not hate the society, not often. But some questions, Sal's among them, forced him to consider what the organization to which he'd given his life had been before he joined. What work it had done in the world, who it had hurt, and why. The society must have been in Guatemala during the conquest. What magic had his ancestors used against the church he served? What happened to them afterward? The society is very old, he said, because there was no space to say the rest. Its rules and punishments were framed in a different time. And nobody changed them, amended them? Sal could be so American sometimes. Customs change faster than Britain law. That is, for example, why you were not formally tried. An investigative committee can censure and reprimand, but it cannot punish. But this is a formal trial. He did not want to answer that question. Yes. So, Asante could, we hope not, he said too quickly. Sal blinked. Wait, how does that go with the whole seamless garment of life thing? The society's methods and rules are older, he said. She may be exiled, uh, she may be killed outright, though that's unpalatable for many. More likely, they will confine her. There are cells, dark, empty rooms where no one goes, rooms without visitors or books. A woman could live a long time in those cells. They have not been used in a very long time, but they are kept up to code in case. She'll go mad. They will bring her a pill, he said, every day with dinner. It used to be a cup back when we were less good at poison. Whether she chooses to take the pill is up to her. Christ. He didn't make the obvious joke. It felt too cruel. And no one has been sentenced in at least 200 years. When was the last formal trial? The only answer he could give to that was a change of subject. Asante will be fine. She has an excellent canon lawyer. Everything she did, she did to save Belfast and the world. We're only alive now because of her. And the custom is powerful. Nobody on that stage wants to make precedent of using punitive power. All she has to do is let the lawyer argue. I'd be happier, Sal said, if this didn't feel so much like a firing squad. The cannon lawyer entered, a balding man in a priest's collar who walked as if his suit were too tight. The lantern painted his face a mottled red. Manchu wondered if the lawyer was claustrophobic. His eyes kept darting to the windowless walls. He joined Asante at the defendant's table. They sat. Monsignor Fox struck the gavel, and the courtroom hushed. Silence tightened like a drumskin. We are here, Fox said, to address serious charges laid against Archivist Asante. Charges of dereliction of duty, abandonment of mission, theft and misuse of archival materials, and... Uh... He did not look like he wanted to say the last part. Manchu did not blame him. The word was, doubtless, the reason the room was full. Who had suggested it, Sansoni?
witchcraft. The courtroom rumbled. Someone laughed and someone else shushed her. Counselor, the Monsignor continued, addressing the canon lawyer. How does Mrs. Asante plead? The lawyer looked down. The room grew quiet once more, the audience afraid he might speak too softly for them to hear. They needn't have bothered. It's doctor, actually. The loudest crowd roar couldn't have covered Asante's voice, though the audience tried. Asante swept to her feet and fixed Fox and Umber with an imperious stare. Your Excellencies, I will argue in my own defense, and I plead innocent. On a scale of one to doomed, Sal said, you have to admit we're pretty close to ghostly voices prophesying war territory. One, don't misquote Coleridge, and two, you're being sensational. Grace marched ahead of her into the archives, which were empty, all Asante's little helpers, her worker bees and librarian monks, suspended until the trial's end. The new concentric circles of shelves, the computers, clean desks, and caretaking apparatus stood untended. We did the right thing. Asante did the right thing. We saved people and shut down evil magic, which is basically our entire job description. Yes, the stakes were higher than usual. We faced a new enemy and defeated it with new methods, which means there's a shakeup at the top and they're looking for someone to blame. Asante's the logical scapegoat. But they know she did the right thing. They'll respect that. They'd be idiots not to. They'll give her a chance to play ball and she'll take it because she values her work too much to risk leaving it to someone else, let alone the whole maybe getting executed thing. Were we watching the same trial? She told him to throw the book at her. She pleaded innocent, Grace said, because that gives her more of a chance to argue. She doesn't think she can win, she just wants a fight. Grace picked up diseases of the common beetle and thumbed past close-up photos of abdomens and mandibles, mesothoraces, and what the hell ever else. Sal sat on Francis's desk, thought better of it, and slid off. She moved to Asante's desk, thought better of that, and settled at last on Liam's. I don't think I've ever been in here without her before. Maybe once when the demons sleepwalked me in, but even then she found me. She's dedicated, Grace said, without looking up from a two-page spread of multicolored scarabs. Grace, you're saying the society will do what's right, will protect its people. It would have been so easy to say you know that isn't true, to throw Grace's history right back at her, cursed in the line of duty, treated like a science project by her government, abandoned by her friends, lost to time. That had been Grace's old Bureau of Official Secrets at work, not the SLO, but Sal didn't think the SLO would have acted any differently. Organizations defended themselves first. They took care of their people second, or third, if at all. It would have been so easy to say, I don't want them to do to Asante what your old colleagues did to you. The words weren't fair. The privilege of knowing those buttons and levers existed, of knowing the secret controls of Grace's heart, came with the trust not to use them. I'm not so convinced. These same people would have been comfortable just letting me disappear back when I was possessed, feeding me to Team Two's exorcism and torture program. You remember, the one where the society never bothered to check if anyone survived? I remember. Grace had stopped paging through the book. From the tension in her shoulders, from the twitch in her jaw, Sal thought she was remembering other things, too. Had she gone too far? Pushed the buttons even when she'd tried not to? Asante went to bat for me when things turned bad last year, Sal said, and so did you. I'm alive now only because you didn't trust the system then. Verano's gone. I know, Sal said, and yeah, it's possible they'll do better by Asante than they did by me, but do you want to run that risk? I'm not saying we have to go for her now. I'm not saying that is our plan A. 
but we should be ready to break her out if things get bad. I won't let her. The door closed. Grace snapped the book shut. She and Sal straightened and turned around. Meerkats, thought the part of Sal that was always watching the rest of her. Manchu stood at the door leading to the society hall. He'd closed it harder than usual, and Sal was certain she'd shut it behind her when they entered, so he had been listening. He slumped down the stairs, exhausted, leaning on the rail, and whatever he had heard, he didn't mention. Sal, Grace. Grace's mouth opened, and Sal read questions in her eyes. She was missing the right word. Maybe there wasn't one. She said, Arturo, which didn't cover the half of it. Of course, she couldn't ask him to help plan Asante's rescue or even to convince Grace. He'd rebelled against the society to save Sal because the society had been corrupt, because Sal had been falsely imprisoned. But Asante had been arrested for good reason. She'd used magic. Now the society had to decide how it felt about sorcery and make that decision public through its judgment on the archivist. He'd been friends and sparring partners with Asante for decades as they gave their lives to the church that now came between them, and yet he couldn't be part of any plot to save her. But he was torn, Sal thought, reading the corners of his mouth, the glance he shared with Grace, the shrug of his slumped shoulders. He wouldn't stop Sal and Grace either, or share what he'd heard with the Monsignors. There were two of Arturo Menchu, each at war with the other. So he slouched past them and set one hand on Asante's desk, lost in thought. But in the end, all he could ask was, where's Liam? And that question, neither Sal nor Grace could answer. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
There were too few noises in the clinic underneath the Vatican, where society doctors cared for wounds they couldn't trust a normal hospital to understand. The walls were soundproofed, the doors thick. Liam, entering the waiting room, wanted to hear groans or heart rate monitor beeps or the drip of fluids down tubes. He heard only silence and the scrape of the nurse's pen over paper. He closed the door without sound and stepped as softly as he could manage around the nurse's desk and into the clinic hall. Back here, there was a little sound at least, the soft tread of sensible shoes on tile cleaned with aseptic cleaner. A gurney wheel squeaked. Fluorescent light made the green walls greener. His heart beat fast. He glanced over his shoulder. He wasn't afraid of being caught. He knew this place well. They knew him. He wasn't supposed to be here, no. But on the master list of shit a Team 3 operative had done that they weren't supposed to do, he doubted sneaking into the clinic even raided these days, so long as he hadn't swiped an invisibility cloak to do it and set fire to half of Rome as a distraction. He himself had been under care here so many times he'd started pestering the front desk for one of those cards you got in coffee shops, 10th visits free. The front desk attendant at the time had observed that all his visits were, in fact, free, which did not change the principle of the thing. The clinic wasn't large or hard to search. It was built for doctors to navigate in a hurry. Long before Liam was ready, he found himself in front of a door with a chart outside that named the patient. Haddad. Francis, over a grid of medical details that really weren't his business, acetaminophen allergy, he did not read anymore. There was a small window in the door, and through it, he saw her body outlined under the bedsheet. The outline didn't look normal. He could not see her face through the window, not at this angle. The light within the room flickered garishly. She was, he thought, watching cartoons. She had been so excited about magic. He'd scorned her for that, scoffed at the wide-eyed exuberance. She would feel differently, he thought. Christ, had he even told her? She would feel differently if she ever felt magic's bite herself. And now she lay in that bed, and he had walked away from Belfast Hole, free of Christina, free of the demons, free at last of the shadow that had haunted him for years. He'd walked away once more, this time forever. How had he earned that? Of course he hadn't. Magic touched you, and scarred. Sometimes you scarred worse, that was all. Magic was like life that way. It had little reason and less justice. It only had survivors. But God touched the world, God shaped the world, but he did not communicate through tragedy. Liam didn't know if a priest would agree with that opinion, he'd never asked. He had been broken after Prague, and by grace he was... Not whole, but at least close to himself again. There, but for the grace of God, he thought, and reached for the door handle. But the thought skewed sour, and he pulled his hand back again. He owed her something he could not shape in his mind or heart. Liam turned away and ran into the nurse. Mr. Doyle, the nurse told Liam, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Our patients need their rest. Fine, Liam said and let himself be escorted out. Arturo knelt and prayed, alone in his office. He asked Jesus Christ and Mary and all the saints for forgiveness. He asked for guidance. He might have asked for aid, but someone knocked on his door. He stood grumbling through the cracks and pops in his knees, through all the tensions and weaknesses accumulated from a life of running from, and more often than he liked, toward demons.
It's open, he said and poured himself a glass of water. The door creaked. Shoes padded onto the thick rug. He thought he recognized the step and took a sip of water in case he was right. When he turned to face the inevitable, Monsignor Anjuli was waiting. The priest looked smaller and more still than Arturo had seen him in years. His hair was no less gray, no more thin. The lines on his face had not multiplied or sunk. The old man had carried something with him once, that was all, and had set it down somewhere. He did not seem to miss the weight. But when he walked to Arturo's altar and knelt and crossed himself, he moved with such care Arturo worried he might be on the verge of collapse. Arturo had known many good men in his service. He counted the Monsignor among them. But sometimes goodness was not enough. The Monsignor prayed for what felt like a long time, and around them the Vatican machinery ground on, papers pushed, carts wheeled. Somewhere, no doubt, someone said mass. Menchu did not speak first. There was too much he wanted to say, and everything collided on the way to his mouth, words tangling with words. He wished there were windows in his office to relieve this dark stone weight of prayer. Anjuli stood. Father, he said with his back to Arturo. What are you doing here was too direct. To what do I owe the honor was too formal. Why did you abandon us was what he wanted to say, but could not bear to. He had known Anjuli for decades. And because of him, people had died. Because of him, no. I did not expect you, Monsignor, Arturo said. This is not a formal visit, Father. I've taken care that no one should know I was ever here. Anjuli smiled sadly. Not that anyone much cares where I go these days. I've received a transfer, you know. I grew up near Naples, and my childhood parish needs another priest. My sister still lives nearby. It's nice. I took my first communion there, an old stone building on a hill, surrounded by rolling fields, with the sea in the distance. Nihil in Territ, as Ovid has it. Arturo wanted to leave, wanted to punch the old man. No, he did not want that. What had happened to them? It must be his fault somewhere along the line, some wrong turning, something he could have said years back to make their lives turn out better. I did wrong, Arturo. I should have acted, and I stayed my hand. I was afraid. I have always tried to do the right thing, but uh, sometimes there is nothing right to do. You did well, Arturo did not say, as well as anyone in your shoes. He lacked the skill to tell that lie. You do not have to forgive me, and it would not matter if you could. Forgiveness and healing, I trust to God and prayer and time and work. But some things have become clear to me in the few days since I stepped down. Freed of my burdens, I begin to understand. You've come to give me advice, Arturo said. Only this. Decide rather than waiting. Learn from my mistakes. I don't know what you mean. I will not be cardinal, Anjuli said. I was never right for the position. I knew it in my soul, and I only wish I had been brave enough to say as much in public before it was too late. 
And that leaves the society without the head. Fox. And she began but could not finish the sentence. And Julie took a Bible from Menchu's desk and thumbed through it without settling on a passage. He would love the seats, but he will not take it without a mandate. And while the selection committee has tilted conservative after Belfast, many will not support him. Without a unanimous vote or near to it, Fox will not accept the office. The progressives in the committee will look to you, which gives you power. Use that power. For what? Your team needs a new Monsignor, Anjuli said. You're the logical choice, but you know and I know that logic counts for little in these affairs, especially after Belfast. You are tainted by association with me and with your team. But if you were to support a strong conservative cardinal to the seat, he could prove his desire to unify the society by appointing you, Monsignor, in my stead. Turner recited an ave in his head to fill the pause of thought. No. Then you accept a conservative cardinal and a conservative monsignor. Masanti will talk the society into schism. You know this as well as I do. There are not enough radicals to carry the day if that happens. Then Fox or someone else will have his mandate. And if you wait too long, you'll lack any power to save yourself or your team. You're wrong. Am I, Arturo? And you've been talking to Sansone. And Julie spread his hands, neither confirming nor denying. That is all I have to offer you now. You've always been the stronger man. We need men like you in the Monsignor role. And when the time comes, you may be cardinal. Or for Santi's body. Smoke rose from the incense. The room smelled of sandalwood. Air rattled through a ceiling vent. All oh, life is sacred, Arturo. The society needs you. It needs you more than it ever needed me. And Julie's shoulders straightened once he'd said that, and he seemed relieved. That's all. I should go. I have been honored to serve with you, my friend. They shook hands, like two men anywhere. Arturo closed the door after him and leaned his forehead against it and closed his eyes, and felt the motion of the world. Two. The second day of the trial started bad and went worse. More people came. Sal had not thought any more people could come after the first day's crowd. Surely only so many Vatican personnel knew about magic. But more folk depended on Team Tree than Sal had ever realized, and the other way around. She should have known. Who had she thought bought the plane tickets and arranged the rental cars, Liam? The prosecutor stalked between the defendant's table and the bench. Sal hated the guy on first sight. She'd known enough courtroom vultures to recognize the breed. Pale, patient, dedicated, hungry. Back in the forest, they tended to be on her side, but even then she'd never liked them the way the other guys did. Police did their job, and if they were good police, they did their job the best they could. But even good police got stuff wrong all the time. She didn't know a single good officer without a shred of doubt. Some might not admit it until they were a fifth of whiskey into the night, but everyone had the collar they weren't quite sure about. The questionable evidence, the snap decision, the three years later still sat wrong. Prosecutors, though. Something must have skewed to make a human being look at evidence and ask themselves not whether the facts pointed toward guilt, 
but what story they could tell to convince an audience they did. The system had its logic, Sal knew that. She could have given a speech on the subject. She didn't want to, she preferred to do her job. Unfortunately, for now, her job involved waiting and watching the Shrike at work. The prosecutor built his case matchstick by matchstick. He kept his hands folded as he paced the courtroom and only unlaced his fingers to produce evidence or make brief economical gestures. He wasted nothing. He outlined their failure in Middlecombe. His rhetoric was as spare as his person. Sal forgot his exact words almost as soon as he spoke them, but the story lingered. He showed their first attempts to resolve the crisis, their explorations and investigations, and he showed how they failed. He brought Tavani Shaw to the stand and she recounted the disaster. The village a clear burn and forget case, which Team 3 dragged out to horrible lengths by their insistence on finding a magical solution to a military problem. Sal's editorializing, not Shaw's. The Team 1 leader answered with swift, sharp language. Sal recognized the patterns. Shaw was trained to testify. It didn't work. The village died. And then Belfast almost died as well. Asante interviewed Shaw after the prosecutor stepped down. Corporal, she said, and the courtroom sank into silence. Functionaries leaned forward. Hell, Sal leaned forward herself. Would you have burned Belfast if the situation there got out of hand? I would have tried. You would have failed. Objection. Asante did not hesitate. Do you think you would have succeeded? It's not likely, Shaw said. Not with all the weapons in your arsenal. Magic is insidious, she said. It can hide, bide its time, and reemerge when we least expect. Even if we had clearance to burn the city, the chance some portion of the network would have evaded us remains high. In your professional opinion, there was no straightforward military solution to this magical problem. Not without more firepower than I've been allowed so far, Shaw said. No. No further questions. The prosecutor interviewed other Team 1 grunts. He presented maps and evidence. The court recessed for lunch, and Team 3 ate together in the canteen, not speaking. After lunch, the assault began again. At last, the prosecutor called Asante. The archivist processed to the stand. Her dress bellowed behind her. Her long, heavy braids rose in a knot atop her head. She might have been attending her own coronation for all the concern she showed as she settled into the witness chair. The prosecutor took a thick folder from his briefcase. Sal needed no inside information to know what that folder held. He wanted to prove Asante used magic, and there were more than enough records on file. Archivist Asante, you stand accused of abusing the trust the church has placed in you to lock away and guard magic. Do you, in front of this court, deny these challenges? Yes, Asante said. Do you recognize this device? I expect so, Asante said before he could hand her the photograph. Nervous chuckles shot through the audience. Sal wished she had not done that. Humor never played well. This is the orb. The society has used it for hundreds of years to track magical disturbances. And this device? This is also the orb. Do these items look the same to you? Largely. She handed him back the photographs. The underlying principle remains the same. But there are differences. Asante seemed entirely too pleased with herself. Yes. Describe those differences. Earlier this year, the orb ceased working as designed. We spent much of the year trying to restore it to its initial function. By incorporating new magical devices? Yes, and learning more about its properties. How? Experiments, she said. Did you learn about the device's properties in any way other than pure experiment? We spoke to its designers. 
shocked silence. Zhao glanced right reflexively. Manchu was turning an imperial shade of purple. You spoke to heretics. We spoke to Team Four, Asante said, yes, who were branded heretics when they pursued their research into magic beyond the limits allowable at the time. They're a bit batty, but quite nice if you get to know them. The batteness largely comes from their existence beyond time, I should imagine. The prosecutor stared at Asante, who did not seem to notice. Zhao remembered a cartoon from the old Saturday morning days. The coyote finally catches the roadrunner, only the roadrunner has grown enormous while the coyotes shrunk to ant size. And the coyote holds a sign up to the audience that says, well, folks, I caught him. Now what do you expect me to do with him? Asante looked pleased as the roadrunner. Team four, the prosecutor tried, are heretics, Asante cut him off. So you've said, and I spoke with them. As I spoke with experts in the world of magic, as I searched forbidden tomes, as I sent Team Three out to gather artifacts the church lost hundreds of years ago. And yet, and here the man went off the rails, because he was articulate enough to ask the question, logically minded enough to frame it, but too focused on the kill to remember that you never ever went off script when a witness offered you such an easy opening. You claim you did not abuse our trust. Sal saw the mistake, and Sal saw Asante see it, and smiled before she took advantage. Of course, I did nothing of the sort. The orb helps us all do our jobs. Magic, in fact, helps us all routinely. Every team uses it. Team one's weapons and armor, team two's various expedient means, our orb and our shroud. We've wavered on this subject for hundreds of years. What magic was okay to use, what we thought we could control, what we had to repress. Now the world is changing under us, and we have to change with it or, or die holding the low ground while floodwaters rush in. I have honored the trust this church showed me, and I've saved lives doing it. This mealy-mouthy equivocation about what magic's okay and what's not, this obsession with control, that's your issue. Saving the world is mine. After that, not even the gavel helped. Machu stormed down the long, dark, unfinished stone hallway to Asante's cell. There were guards outside the barred door. He gave them the same look he'd given the ones outside the hall, and they didn't bother asking him to present credentials. They just opened the door and walked away. The cell within had been fitted out for princes of the church in centuries past, and someone somewhere had maintained the furniture, even installed a modern bathroom. Asante lounged on a Louis XIV armchair, wearing bunny slippers and a robe, her hair in a towel, Reading done. Uh, are you suicidal? She turned a page. I think that went rather well, actually. Well? He was shouting. She glanced up over her book and her reading glasses. He pinched the bridge of his nose and paced, praying, until he calmed down. They're furious. The Monsignors are fuming. You have three quarters of the society talking about Team Four because nobody loves a taboo subject quite so much as employees of a secret organization. And meanwhile, the conservative faction wants you gone, if not dead. They've wanted me gone, if not dead, for years. I'm just giving them the pretext. She turned another page. You're not even reading that. I read fast. Not that fast and not done. I can't be blamed for the poor literary selection in this cell. I asked for books, but they were worried I might use them to witch myself free. She wiggled her fingers half mockingly. His heart ached for her smile. Asante, please, put the book down. We need to talk. She closed the volume and set it on her lap. Her fingers stroked the leather cover. Arturo, what's on your mind? They'll kill you. The rest of the team wasn't here. There were no kids to care for, no pretenses to maintain. 
They won't be so bold. They'll cast me into the outer darkness, maybe. But they don't want to attract attention. Besides, I scare them too much. They'll worry I might curse them from the stake. I can't believe you're joking about this. We saved the city, Arturo. She set the book on the table and tapped its cover. We joke about saving the world, and we've done it before, but if we'd made a mistake in Ireland, there wouldn't be a Belfast now. We're doing the right thing. And if they want to sit there full of righteousness and claim we should have let that city die, I'll make them feel the fire in which they're burning. There are other ways to do it, he said. Better ways, slower ways, but ways that work. Form from within. Say you're sorry, say you did what you had to do, but you regret that you had to do it. Eat crow. You know more than anyone how important our work is, and we need you. She read him with those cool, neutral eyes, like you read a chess player across the board, rather than someone you'd worked beside for years. How had they come to this? After all they'd been through together, after all the lives they'd saved and all the disasters they'd averted, watching one another like strangers watching strangers? I need you. She wavered for an instant. He saw the uncertainty, which he'd not seen for so long he almost believed her incapable of it. But her face closed. I know, Arturo, you all need me, which is why I have to do this here, now. I can't let us stay fools forever while the world ends around us. The system you love is broken. Belfast's only still here today because of the work we put in this year learning about magic. We've come so far in so little time, but we have to go further to survive what's coming next. I can't leave them to their ignorance, Arturo. They have to know. Convince them slowly, convince them in private. I can't. You know more than anyone how that works. Assurances of change in private while publicly they close ranks. Gradual change means no change at all. Because the people in charge can always say we don't notice how much better the situation's grown. Our only chance is to make this a referendum. To force them to decide together. This is bigger than either of us. Certainly bigger than me. She said it tenderly, but he heard the steel beneath the velvet. I have my reasons for doing things this way, and I need you to understand them. Was this all he could do for her? Watch, stand back, let the inevitable occur? I can't, he said. Grace caught Sal on her evening run through Vatican City. Rome wasn't built for running, with its narrow, clogged sidewalks, fast drivers, and sidewalk cafes, but deep-wired American circuitry insisted on the jog, no matter how unpleasant, more insistently, the greater the unpleasantness in question. Dumb, but national character was hard to shake. So Grace shouldered her way through the crowd and caught Sal waiting for a streetlight, still not quite used to Roman street-crossing habits, and said, they'll kill her. Sal only jumped a little when Grace spoke, and it occurred to Grace that she hadn't bothered to make herself hurt as she approached. Nice evening to you, too. Speaking of American habits, Grace could have done without small talk when there were important issues to cover. You were right. They'll kill her. She'll force their hand. She'll push them farther than they can go, and then she'll push more because she has an ideal fixed in her head. They'll have to shove back, and then the light changed. Sal jogged across, and Grace followed, shouldering past priests. And then it'll be too late to stop them. We need to get her out, quietly. Maybe get her to the Maitress, maybe to Alexandria, somewhere she'll be safe. When she's out of the picture, they can say whatever they want. They can claim they offered her exile and she took it. It's not treason, she said as they reached a miraculously empty stretch of sidewalk. We're protecting them from themselves. When they realize how much we need her, they'll beg her to come back. It's a theory. Sal had to pause between the words. She was breathing hard and heavy in the Roman June. 
There were advantages to living under a curse, Grace thought. She felt the heat, though muted. You don't believe they'll let her live. I think, Sel said, that if we're gonna do this, we need Liam. Liam was pacing outside the clinic when Sel found him. He hadn't tried to sneak in again. They were watching for him. Not that he'd have had any trouble getting into C. Francis without sneaking. The orderlies would take him straight back to her room if he asked. The problem was, if he asked, they'd take him straight back to her room and expect him to enter. So he paced outside the clinic, hands in pockets, listing in his head the various ways he was an idiot and a wanker and a fundamentally useless scrap of flesh. He was carrying his shoulders up beside his ears, hunched as if expecting a blow from on high. He tried to relax and failed utterly, which was the condition in which Sal found him. We need your help. Do you? He sat and paced around her. Well, it just so happens I placed a personal moratorium on aid for the next, say, six weeks or so. A bit of penance and a bit of, what's the term they use on the internet these days? Oh yeah, self-care. She didn't follow him. Her silence stretched as he walked away. He stopped when he could not bear the strain and turned back. Grace and I have a plan to help her, but we need to be in on this together. Do we really? Liam did not need to ask which her Sal meant. There was only one her, the one they could still help, not the one he'd failed already. She saved us all one time or another, Sal said. This is the world, Sal. We do what we must and then we pay for it. She's paying now and eagerly. She's paying more than she should. You know that just as well as I do. And you know that she'll make herself pay even more than that unless we stop her. Of course, so we should presume to know what outcomes right for her and for the church, and why not for all God's little creatures while we're at it? I don't know what's gotten into you. She crossed her arms and judged him. She was always judging him behind those eyes. They had that in common. You're a hero. You acted like one in Belfast. And look what happened. A Santian trial, and Francis quite likely fucked up for life. By people I helped train. By a demon I brought into this world. His voice went low and fierce. Asante and Francis, Sal said, risked everything to save people they cared about. And their risk, their decisions had little, if anything, to do with you. I know Belfast hurt. I know getting your past back hurt. But there's more at play here than your feelings. Your choice is what you'll do next. Will you go inside that room? Will you come with me? Or will you stay here pacing and looking lost? The clinic door waited for him. He wanted no part of whatever cocked-up rescue mission Sal and Grace had contrived. Asante stood penance. If anyone recognized that and respected it, Liam should. But Sal was also right. He could not wait here anymore. Pacing in a hall healed no wounds, expiated no sin. The right path would be to turn from Sal and walk into the clinic and go to Francis's bedside and apologize. The door waited, closed. Liam said, Tell me about your plan. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. You know that moment when you realize danger is right around the corner? Maybe you feel it on the, on the back of your neck, like those little hairs that stick up, right? Or, or the palms of your hands are itchy and hot at the same time, or your heart is beating so fast it's, it's like a hum? 
Well, I love that feeling, and I'm pretty sure that you do too. So let me introduce you to Adrenaline. My name is Neil Helligers, and I am the host of Adrenaline, which is a curated collection of Realm's most riveting thrillers. And as your host, I'll be here to guide you through a new audio series coming at you each month. So whether you're uncovering the secret of disappearing ships in the Bermuda Triangle or in the race of your life against time and your evil doppelganger and it's only Tuesday, fight or flight are not your only options in the face of danger. Sometimes you just need to keep on listening. So buckle in, yeah, get, get that one too, yeah, that chin strap is important, and get ready to embark on a journey of adrenaline. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El-Motar, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Exe Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch-Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs> <laughs>